Hello and welcome to CityWire's Funds Fanatic Show. My name is Jeremy Gordon and I'm very pleased to be joined on the podcast today by economist and author Joe Studwell. Joe is a director on the board of the Pacific Horizon Investment Trust run by Bailey Gifford, but I must confess before I stumbled across that fact, he was best known to me as author of How Asia Works, an iconoclastic 2013 study of development in the region. The latest of several books he's written on similar themes, this gave the clearest explanation I've yet come across for why, say, South Korea went from mid-century economic destitution to effectively catching up with Western countries, while Southeast Asian countries like the Philippines did not. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, well, thank, thanks for coming on. So, so I'm conscious I've, I've introduced you by mentioning a book which actually came out in 2013. Maybe to bring us up to date a bit with what you're up to, I can start by asking, what, what's your day job, so to speak, at the moment? Uh, that's a good question. What is my day job? Um, my day job is writing a, a book at the moment on Africa. Um, and uh, I did a PhD uh, in between that last book, How Asia Works, and this new book which is why I haven't had a book out for um, a good number of uh, years. Um, and um, then I do one or two other things as well. I do a bit of consulting. And as you mentioned, um, I have this um, non-executive director position at Pacific um, Horizon, which is a uh, Asia X Japan investment trust. And that's been yeah. very interesting. Okay. Well, great. I'd certainly lots for us to come come back to there, but maybe you can start by telling us a bit more about your connection with Bailey Gifford, as you've just mentioned. Um, well, before I started um, on the on the board of Pacific Horizon, I knew Bailey Gifford a little bit, but only in a, in, a, in in the way that I'd come to know a lot of uh, fund management businesses over the years from having worked for uh, about twenty five years in East Asia and books that I'd written and things I'd written as a journalist. Um, had led them to ask me a few times to go and give talks, you know, just like giving talks for other other people. So there was no more, no greater connection than that, really. Um, I suppose the only other thing for me was I always enjoyed going to um, Edinburgh. I was like the sort of culture of, 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 the, of the Edinburgh financial services industry, which I think is a, a bit different to what you get in London. Mm, that that's interesting. I mean, what's it what, what's it like going into these asset managers? Uh, <laughs> I suppose what, what's the experience like? Are the fund managers trooping into the room with enthusiasm, or, or how's it normally work? Yeah, I mean, Bailey Gifford people. I mean, I remember when talks I gave there; they were always very well attended. Um, uh, I don't know whether people were, were forced to turn up, but I uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully not. And it's yeah, it's very sort of it's very research driven. Um, place and uh yeah yeah and you meet very smart people there yeah um, and it's less you know it's in my experience it's purely my experience just less frenetic than i would say things feel when you go into a lot of investment businesses in 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 the city in london okay that, that that's interesting and so we've mentioned how asia works and, and another book you wrote called asian godfathers which is more about uh, sort of oligarchs and developmental failure in Southeast Asia, I think, uh, are on the reading list for Bailey Gifford's graduate scheme. Uh, you've mentioned before, which is quite, quite interesting. Yeah, unfortunately, so I've blighted the lives of, uh, of the generation <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of Bailey Gifford research people. Um, and yeah, no, they're still, um, as I understand, they're still made to read these books and frequently complain about having to read things that were published so long ago can't we read something new 
<laughs> yeah, we were speculating a bit before about whatever it is, but they want to read that's newer. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure myself. Now, we, we probably won't be discussing Pacific Horizon, um, which, uh, as you said, is, has been a really successful um, Asia-Pacific ex-Japan fund directly too much today. But um, I suppose, broadly, what, what's being a director on the trust involve? Well, I mean, for me, it was incredibly interesting when I joined because I'd, know, I'd never thought that I would do anything like this. I'd no experience of it. Um, and the board, as I joined it originally, you know, what was striking was that everybody was fantastically good at running a listed company, but there wasn't really that much expertise on the part of the world that we were investing in. Mm. And I think that's not particularly unusual. Um, so, you know, I... I, I enjoying I thought well what, what can I do that's useful and what I've enjoyed the most is is conversations with the managers really about um, companies and countries and governments um, where we're invested um, you have to be very careful because of course you can't uh, you can't and you don't want uh, to be seen to be providing anything that could could constitute advice to the managers or pushing them in any direction but just having an interaction which um, which which you know challenges them on a on a on a regular basis and hopefully just creates um well it just expands the base of knowledge on all on all sides and that's the part that i really um that i that i've really enjoyed and to be fair to the managers they've been fantastic because they at least based on what they've said they've enjoyed it as well mm-hmm. um, and they've you know they've liked having someone who who's just on a day-to-day basis um well, less so now, as I say, doing Africa, but generally in the, uh, over the years, who's been immersed on a day-to-day basis in, in the stuff that they're dealing with. That's interesting. How, how often do you talk to them? Um, oh, you know, well, obviously you, you, you talk to them when you go and have board meetings, but I, um, you know, over the time I've been doing it, I've just had sort of infrequent but regular bilaterals with them. And we'll just go through a particular country and say, well, what do you think's going on here? And... Um, talk about some of the countries and they're not usually I'm, I'm asking a lot of questions because obviously with the companies they will know far more than I do because they you know they've, they've drilled down in enormous depth before they yeah. make some decisions um, but yeah it's just um, yeah it's just 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 nice to um, to interact with people who um, are really yeah really really research driven Mm, okay. Well, maybe we can um, come back to some of that. But I suppose turning to your own your own work a bit more, maybe it makes sense to start by rewinding about three decades um, or so to when you first went to China. What What were you doing when you first went out there? I was following my wife. She made me go. <laughs> she'd uh, she'd read Chinese. So at the time um, when I arrived, in, well, we arrived in Hong Kong first, and then eighteen months later went up to Beijing. So yeah. I didn't I didn't speak any Chinese. Um, and uh, yeah, then spent years and years um, struggling um, with that language. Um, and but you know, thoroughly enjoyed the whole experience. But I think that for me, um, although we were based for almost a decade in, in Beijing, in all the time that I was there, I was always interested in the region and how the region was developing, and so. I did a fair amount of magazine writing, so I'd go and do magazine pieces in different um, countries in the region. Always, and that's for people like the Economist, right? 
for the Economist Intelligence Unit, I did a lot of work. I did odd things for the Economist. I, I did things for the Asian Wall Street Journal, for the FT, um, and for a local, well, local regional business magazine called Asia Inc. Um, and it was all um, business, finance, economic stuff because that was that was what the market was, the, the journalistic market was. Um, and just yeah, slowly got to know um, the region and, and read in, you know read into the histories um, of the different countries in the region. Um, I mean, I had done history as an undergraduate degree, so I had some, yeah. some knowledge. Um, but yeah, I was just became fascinated and fascinated by the by the different rates and different models of development that you that, that you could see. Mm. Okay, and also I think you you founded a, a an academic journal called China Economic Quarterly, which is still going, uh, I believe, and that that also grew into uh, Dragonomics, right? Which then morphed into Gavcal Dragonomics, which is quite is quite a well known research house in, in Asia. Yeah, so that was ninety seven. I was living in China from ninety three, um, mm. and it was all the sort of pure journalism until ninety seven, and then I started that started the China Economic Quarterly, which was the basis of the sort of initial research product um, for Dragonomics, uh, which, as you say, um, became Gavcal Dragonomics when I left in two thousand and seven. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's a it's a macro research business, and uh, yeah, it's done um, it's done pretty well. And um, well, maybe so. You know, when you first went out there, you said I think you moved to mainland China in 1993, or, or, or sorry, around then. You said, I mean, can you give us a sense of of what what some of the other characters you you were meeting? I mean. I, uh, you've also written a book called The China Dream, which is about this kind of foreign investment gold rush in China in the 1990s. Yeah, and that's exactly what it was in those first few years, because if you think back, 1992 was Deng Xiaoping's um, southern tour, as it was called, you know, when he came out after the Tiananmen uh, massacre three years after that and said, right, we need to get back to growth. And um, there was uh, pretty universal um support for that um desire to get back to rapid growth um and that coincided with a gold rush um by by foreign companies um i think you know because if you're running a multinational business you, you looked at china in the 90s and you said well you know if if this country is going to grow at 10% a year um it, it will be a huge part of the business that my company does. And the logic of that was absolutely correct. But as is often the case with investment decisions, the, the, the timing wasn't necessarily perfect. And so what you had in the, the early and mid-90s was a lot of um, foreign uh, businesses, multinational businesses and investment businesses piling into China um, at a time when the economy was still actually... Um, surprisingly small when you looked at it in hard terms. I mean, when I arrived in, in 1993, for instance, the, the GDP per capita in current dollars was 340 per person. Wow. Um, which, is, which is like, you know, less than half of what Ethiopia is today. I mean, again, in current, again, in current money. But, um, you know, and today China's at, at, at approximately 10,000. Um, 
So there was, I would say, a decade really of um, foreign investors pouring money into China and then finding that there wasn't really the business yet to be done that the scale of their investments required. Mm, Okay. And so uh, at what point do you realize there's this, uh, this yawning gap really between the reality of why, why countries like Japan, Taiwan, and then, you know, while you were there, really China um, began to become developmentally successful uh, versus the kind of what's sometimes called the Washington consensus of free markets and deregulation, which has led quite a lot of other developing countries to make not much progress, really. Well, I mean, I think all the work I did in Southeast Asia led me in that direction. Um, mm. The Asian Godfather's book, which um, is really about the oligarchs of Southeast Asia and asks, you know, poses the question, well, why, do these, why are these economies dominated um, by these oligarch types who don't really exist in places like um, China and, and Japan and Korea? Right. Um, so that work and that book you know, led me to a view that actually what you've got here is an essentially bifurcated um, region of the world in terms of economic development. I mean, none of it is is a, is really a failure. I mean, Southeast Asia is, you know, if you start to compare with Africa, it still looks pretty successful. But if you look within East Asia, um, the difference is enormous between Southeast Asia and, and Northeast Asia. Um, it's the difference between countries in, in one, one and a half generations going to um, highly developed uh, levels of GDP per capita and countries that, that, that remain, you know, in the middle income uh, uh, area, or at least as defined by, by, by the World Bank. And so I started to ask, you know, why? Why are, you know, why are the outcomes so dif- different? And that's what led me to um, the framework of how Asia works and the focus on these these three critical variables, which are the agriculture one, um, in particular, um, whether there had been land reform, which divided one group of countries in East Asia from another, uh, on um, the role of manufacturing and on how uh, the financial system was organised. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, let's talk about agriculture and land reform uh, at first, maybe. I mean, I think probably at the, the words land reform, lots of people's ears will, will perk up. Um, you know, may, maybe, I mean, you know, use an example, if you like, can, can you explain to us what, what happened in, in, in some of these East Asian countries after the Second World War and, and what why it was so important? Yeah, all, all of the most successful East Asian countries, which is to say um, Japan, Korea, China, Taiwan, and now following Vietnam, had um, universal land reforms, which means that agricultural land was taken in hand by government and chopped up pretty much equally, or at least approximate, or at least equally based on what it would render in terms of its yield. Um, among the farming population. And this happened in these countries because at the end of the Second World War, um, unequal access to land and landlessness were uh, were so significant that they were threatening to um, to tear countries apart and threatening to, to lead to just a breakdown in um, 
in societies. So starting with, with Japan, where the US um, eventually concluded it needed to demand that the emperor um, um, put land reform uh, in train, and then going on um, to Korea and to uh, Taiwan, where it happened a little later, and to China, where it happened by means of the Communist Party Revolution and was done about three years after the uh, 1949 liberation. And similarly in Vietnam, where it happened with the, uh, the, the Communist Party in Vietnam. In all of these places, agricultural land was um, chopped up, as I say, pretty much equally among the farming population. Um, it wasn't just about that. It was also about providing extension support, which is to say, telling people, you know, you've got to plant the, the seeds this deep and this far apart and water them on this day. And this is the mix of fertilizer that you need. And then providing all the inputs in terms of um, fertilizer and the right seeds and so forth. But if you put all that together with everybody having a bit of land, um, what, what it turned out to be the case was that... Um, the agricultural productivity in these countries became way higher than um, it had been with larger scale farms. That sounds absolutely crazy because we always imagine that um, there are, there are um, um, returns to scale because I suppose we think of manufacturing and we just translate that into into agriculture, but in fact, if you've got very large numbers of very poor people, in other words, very cheap people, and you turn agriculture into a sort of glorified uh, form of gardening, um, and you garden incredibly intensively with all these people, and you use vertical trellising, um, um, and, and put polythene over everything so that you can, uh, maximize uh, the growth that you produce you can actually um, produce more off the land um, than you can at scale farming the reason you don't do it in rich countries is because people cost too much um, but in east asia it was incredibly incredibly effective um, and led to massive yield gains um, and not only that the yield gains that were produced were very um, evenly spread through society so everybody had a, not much money but a little bit of money and it, this created a demand profile in these countries that meant that what people would uh, purchase was very basic consumer goods um, and um, construction materials that could be manufactured locally you know so farmers they found well they purchased things like very basic household utensils but they would purchase cement they would purchase glass they would purchase bricks and all of this stuff started to be um, manufactured domestically at large scale and that began the transformation uh, in manufacturing which in the book i argued was the second defining characteristic of the most successful um, countries that they mm. they then in policy terms they overemphasize the role of manufacturing Okay, and in, in in particular, so that yeah, that leads us on to the manufacturing piece. In particular, it wasn't just manufacturing; it was export-driven manufacturing. Is that right? So, export-driven manufacturing is important because, in order to overemphasize the role of manufacturing, these governments gave subsidies, very large subsidies, uh, usually through the banking system in the form of cheap credit. And normally, when firms get 
subsidies. It's an invitation to take the money and not do what they've been asked to do. But what happened in East Asia and was very effective was that the um, subsidies in the form of cheap credit were provisioned on the basis of, of exports. And you got your cheap credit by showing your bank um, or by showing your bank um, your your um, your export documentation, and the banks in turn would issue uh, cheap credit against the letter of, letters of credit that were issued for 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 exports, um, and this became very effective because it meant that you couldn't well you couldn't very easily cheat the system. Most people didn't cheat the system; they produced uh, globally competitive goods uh, using. Um, the cheap credit that they were supplied um, by uh, financial systems that were organized in such a way to to do this um, and as I, as I said in the uh, in, in, in the book I mean if you look want to look at the sort of degree of um, overemphasis of manufacturing in these countries what you find is that as a rule of thumb about a third of the workforce comes to work in manufacturing at, at the sort of peak point, which is approximately where China is now. Um, and if you look at countries that don't use a proactive industrial policy in the same way, uh, and India would be an obvious example in Asia, then you'll see that in India it's about 15, 14% of the population works in manufacturing. So in effect, they, these countries doubled the share of the population that was employed in the manufacturing sector. And I suppose why why is that so important? Why why is there no no other way to do it, such as having a more kind of maybe a more consumption led growth boom, for example? Um, well, the way it's put by um, economists is that there's no other automatic escalator um, for productivity convergence. So what this means is that only manufacturing can be shown um, as a sector of the economy to take people who are coming out of agriculture originally largely and bring them into the modern economy and increase their their their, their, their levels of productivity um, to what they are in developed countries in an essentially automatic um, fashion and I mean if you think about um, services so I mean you'll see in some countries in Africa now people say oh well you know they're going to they're not going to do manufacturing. They're going to develop through a services economy. But if you think about services um, and compare them with manufacturing, you know, in manufacturing you can arrive in a in a in a factory where most of the technical capability is vested in machines. So you go and use the machine to produce something. And you can arrive there and you can start sweeping the floor on day one or week one and the next week you do something else and something else. And and they will um, bring you into the production process and you will um, uh, gradually upskill. In services, it's, it's often not like that. Um, you know, if you want, for instance, to have people who are going to go and, and work in call centers using a, a language that's not their first language i mean they can't turn up the first week with a bit of english and start working and then you know the next month have a bit more and so on you know you've got to get over a hurdle in order to be able to 
uh, do the job. And it's the same you know, if you want to be software coding or something like that. And a lot of services jobs are of that nature um, that they uh, they have her skill hurdles, um, and you just can't get in the game until um, until you've got over that hurdle. Um, and there are other there are other reasons as well, but there's something very special about manufacturing. And if you want to sort of look at it historically, um, no country other than other than very small offshore financial centres, and even then, usually not even then, no country has gone the whole way through the development process without having a significant manufacturing sector. Okay. And so, something else that occurred to me was often for these countries, say for, for Japan or Korea, an important symbolic moment, really, um, well, not just symbolic, is when they, they start to develop a, an auto industry, a, a car industry. Um, is, is that still going to be the same in case in the future or will there be a kind of new symbolic manufacturing industry where which kind of shows a country's arrived so to speak i think automotive will continue to be very important because there are so many parts in cars i mean there are a lot fewer parts in electric cars than there are in um, in internal combustion engine cars but nonetheless they're complex products and so and they're, they're complex products and they're very very widely consumed and so they are yeah. an obvious technology um for um, a developing country to aim to have and yeah so i i i, I imagine it will continue okay the car is, the car is still king <laughs> developmentally I, I i think the car's going to continue in one form or other to be uh, king for a long time and also because of course you know when you start to produce cars you've got to have very high quality steel so it, it places requirements on your on your steel industry and right. to really be um, at, 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 at the at the cutting edge, um, or you know, at the, at the forefront of, of, of world standards of production. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think same same old, and that you know, it's it's a funny thing. I mean, and it goes on all the time. And I think you know, even a few years ago, I was hearing it more again. People were saying, "Oh, you know, development it's not going to be the same. It's going to be different." But the reality is that. So far, for the last 250 years, everybody has gone down what the Japanese call the same bends in the river, meaning that they've all had to do steel, they've all had to do cement, they've all had to do platinum, and so on. Right. Unless you're Hong Kong or something, there's, there's really no, no alternative. Hong Kong's um, growth and employment were, were, were critically dependent in the in the fifties and sixties, on its um, um, on its textiles and other processing right. industries, and they then sort of disappeared over the border into China. So people kind of forgot about them. I mean, Singapore Singapore has the highest manufacturing value added per capita in East Asia. Really? Yeah. Part of that, I think, um, is, is, is down to the role of, you know, they have a significant petrochemicals uh, industry, which is put into that, uh, into that calculation. But um, as Singapore has significant, most of it's foreign owned, most of, it's, it's, uh, most of the companies are foreign, but it's still there. Mm, 
Okay. And so we, we've got these first two bits of the puzzle in terms of agriculture and land reform and, and then manufacturing. And the, the third the third bit of the puzzle is that really the financial sector is marshaled to support these uh, these other two factors rather than um, uh, sort of running away with itself in a, in a festival of, of, of deregulation and, and free market economics and so on. Is that, is that right or have I mischaracterized that? Yeah. Um, you know, what... Once you've decided that you're going to be the so-called developmental state and you're, you're going to organise agriculture and manufacturing to be massively more productive than they otherwise would be, um, you want control of the money that is potentially at your disposal. And so that's why all of the most successful countries um, in East Asia did the opposite of what the IMF and the World Bank recommended. Um, with financial sectors, and uh, they all maintained capital controls for a long time. China and Vietnam still got them. Um, and they operated banking systems that were very closely controlled by governments, either because they were dominated by state-owned banks, like in China, or um, uh, they were private banking systems, but very heavily um, controlled by government, as in Japan, um, and yeah, that's the that's the picture. Is is that it, you know money is a, therefore effectively trapped trapped in the domestic economy, and the government can allocate it to the ends that it thinks are the right ones um, for the country's development. Yeah, and I suppose in light of that. You know, equity markets, um, debt markets, wh- where they come up in how Asia works, it's normally in a less than positive light. Um, you know, at best, they don't derail the development process. Could you can you help square the circle a bit when it comes to thinking about investing in Asia? Uh, and and you know, do you have a certain ambivalence about um, yeah, outside investment in Asia? Uh, I mean, I think from a developmental point of view, I don't think it's the case anymore because. The, the IMF in particular has, has changed its tune on, on many of these issues. But it was the case in the 1990s um, in particular that things like stock markets were foisted on developing countries as being you know, fundamental to the early stage of growth. Well, the stock markets are, are difficult, complex things to run, um, and... Um, it's not a bad idea to sort of get going, trying to run a stock market in a small sort of way at an early stage. But it's absolutely not something I think that is uh, going to be a significant element in uh, in the early development um, of a country. And such was the case in mm. uh, in in places like China and Japan, where governments kept stock markets. Um, on a very small scale for a very long time. In, in contrast to a country like Malaysia, where um, the capitalization of, the, of the, the Malaysian stock market was already more than three and a half times GDP, which is a ridiculous level um, by, uh, by international compar- comparative standards um, back in the 1990s. And that was really because... You know, I think that Mahathir's government had bought into a lot of this propaganda and they thought the most important thing for them to do was try and compete with the Singaporean stock market. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, and I suppose it, it, it all ends in the, the Asian financial crisis in, in 1997. Um, I suppose, okay, well, uh, I, I sp- another way of maybe looking at a similar kind of question really is, Asia's high growth rates and, and, and growth potential are frequently cited as reasons for, for investing there. But, you know, does that actually make um, historical or contemporary sense? That's a good, that's a, an interesting question. And um, yes, I mean, you know, if you look at, if you look at Asia since the, the, the Asian financial crisis um, that started in 1997, the best place um, to invest after 1997, the best region to invest um, for 10, the next 10, 15 years was Southeast Asia. Well, Southeast Asia had um, pretty depressed economic growth in that period. Um, so why was it a good place to invest? Well, because they they took the medicine from the IMF and the World Bank, um, and um, you had, um, if they hadn't already been gotten rid of, um, capital controls uh, completely ended, you had thoroughly privatized banking systems, um, and you had banking systems that were pushing out consumer credit. And these economies started to produce um, very profitable um, financial sector businesses and consumer businesses um, that uh, produce fantastic returns for people who put money into them. And if you look in contrast at what was going on in Northeast Asia, almost obviously in China, all through this period, China's growing at 10% or 10% plus a year. But the returns in the um, stock market were nothing like as good. Well, why is this? Um, and the answer, I think, is for exactly the reasons that I was describing uh, before, that you've got a financial system that is set up, that is pumping money and um, cheap credit into the manufacturing sector and other parts of the economy that are um, the developmental state targets. Uh, and what you actually tend to get is huge amounts of overcapacity in many areas, which translate into poor um, uh, poor returns in, in, in terms of profit, but very good returns in terms of technological learning. So by which I mean that these firms are improving their capabilities to produce more complex products year after year after year. But as an investor, your interests are absolutely not um, aligned with those of the developmental state. Because as an investor, you want your cake today. You want to have your cake and you want to eat it. Um, the developmental state is saying, no, 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 we don't, we're not having any cake t- today or tomorrow. We're having it in many years' time that it'll be a nicer cake. Um, well, that doesn't really work for a portfolio investor um, because although everybody in the investing world says that they're, you know, they're into patient capital and all the rest of it, no one is in, no one's into capital that's so patient that it's going to wait 10 or 15 years or 20 years um, as you had to um, to get good stock market returns in countries like China um, and, uh, and Japan. Mm, okay. I mean, I, I, while, while you're speaking there, I was thinking about um, uh, India, you know, for, for Indian equity fund managers or, or, or again, uh, emerging markets fund managers often... Uh, India's banks are, are kind of seen as one of the hottest bets, and so that that kind of thing it's a, it's a signal that maybe it's you know, it could be a good few years for investors, but 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 it doesn't herald such a good thing for Indian development. Then. 
India over the last couple of decades has always been a better place uh, for portfolio investors than many of the Northeast Asian um, countries. And that's because, you know, I was saying it, ha it hasn't had um, real industrial policy in place and it hasn't had real financial repression um, in place. And yes, as you say, um, that can be good for portfolio investors, not necessarily um, so good for India's development and it hasn't been, you know, so good for India's development because, you know, the proof is that when you look at India's economy with just about the same population as China's, it's a quarter of the size of the Chinese economy. And that that is the difference in the policies that they've been able to apply. Mm, okay. And so let, let, let's come on a bit to your more your, your more recent interest in Africa, I think, you know, partly sponsored by the, the Gates Foundation, um, but, you know, Bill Gates's foundation, you've been applying a lot of this same thinking to various African countries. Um, what have been some of the main lessons there so far? Um, I think Africa is, is very interesting um, because it's, it's so different to East Asia um, at a demographic level. Uh, so... In how Asia works, I said at the beginning of the book, I'm not really going to talk about demographics because the growth of populations has been so consistent um, across the region, um, particularly since the Second World War, and has uh, you know population of density, population densities have been um, what's been required for rapid development. Um, Africa, by contrast, um, has been of major areas of our planet the most consistently underpopulated um, part of the world. And even at the end of uh, the decade we're in now, at the end of this decade, um, population density in, in Africa will still only be um, what it was in Asia in 1950, um, which may seem incredible because you see loads of stories in the media about uh, yeah, you know, and you, it looks like there's teeming numbers of people in Nigeria or whatever. But actually, if you look at the continent continent as a whole, it remains um, it remains um, uh, well below what I would say is an optimum uh, population level for rapid um, development. So that's the first thing that sets um, Africa apart. And then the second thing is um, just starting. Um, at a significantly lower level in terms of human capital. Um, if you go, go back to 1950, 1960, I mean, we, you know, we, we often hear about how literacy rates in Korea were half of the population. But when you get into Africa, you, get, you look at countries which had independence, you know, had 20 people who'd been to university in the whole country. So, um, and, 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 uh, and then if you look at illiteracy, you know, illiteracy being the norm in, in many African countries. So those are different things um, from East Asia. But what is the same is that we have two uh, very small African territories that have done um, rapid economic development. And one in particular... Um, has used policies which are very familiar from East Asia. So the two are Botswana and Mauritius. Mauritius, the island um, east of Madagascar. Um, and Botswana really um, profited 
um, just through through governance. I mean, it ha happens to be a, a giant diamond mine, or to have a, a small number of, of very very um, richly endowed diamond mines. And Botswana is just really a, 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 a country where people found a way to work together um, and uh, developed the um, the diamond mines that they have there and just put the money into roads and into education and um, 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 and produce growth around eight percent over a long period of time. Mauritius is is different because it, as I say more um, like an East Asian experience because they had a very uh, clever agricultural policy. I mean, it's a monocrop culture of sugarcane, but they had um, uh, a very um, well thought through policy to support smallholders at the same time as leaving in place um, some large sugar estates, but taxing them very heavily and using that money um, to um, promote developmental policy. And it's really the only place in Africa that has put in place an effective manufacturing strategy and took unemployment from 25% of the working population to zero in, in the course of the 1980s in just, in just 10 years. Um, and did the usual things with manipulating finance as well. Um, the problem is that they're both you know, countries of one to two million people. So on a continent of over a billion people now, um, that um, doesn't really give you evidence, um, you know, about what is going to happen to to, to more populate more populous countries. Um, what we had been starting to see, and everyone, well, and many people in the development sector were very excited about, um, was um, uh, agricultural policy and. Um, um, manufacturing strategy in Ethiopia okay. um, that are very much in line with East Asian experience and would seem to be starting to produce similar um, results. But as I'm sure you know, Ethiopia then in the last couple of years has fallen into a, a civil war, um, which is in a sort of truce uh, now, but um, has been a very... Um, um, sad end or intermission, we don't know what it'll turn out to be, to what looked like the first case of a large population African state um, moving into, into rapid economic development. I mean, there's a, almost 120 million people in Ethiopia today. Um, and so, but we have to wait and see what's, what, what's going to happen there. But um, yeah, they were doing very well in increasing agricultural productivity. There'd been uh, a land reform uh, there. They were very, very focused on agricultural development and then started um, uh, building um, industrial parks and bringing in Chinese, Turkish and Indian um, low value added but high employment firms in textile, in garments and other, and other, and other sectors to, to create jobs. Um, but like many places in Africa, um, you know, Ethiopia is a place where a lot of tensions um, exist on ethnic lines, and that's exactly what has happened. I mean, they've had a an ethnic civil war. Okay. All in all, then, it, you know, it sounds like unfortunately, not 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 that many causes for optimism, really. Um, I suppose something something I wanted to 
re- returned to was um, there was I was I was skimming the conclusion of how, how Asia works for for speaking to you, and you, you know slightly bleakly you 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 raised the prospect or you asked the question you know w- would we see a repeat of, of the kind of rapid development of countries like Japan and Korea and Taiwan again. And you said possibly not. And an important reason was because land reform is so off the political agenda, you know, splitting up the, the some of the big inefficient farming estates in, the, in, in, in lots of countries. You know, what, what, can you can you speak about that a bit more and, and why it's, you know, what, why what clearly once was an acceptable idea in developing countries has fallen away? Yeah, I, I mean, it's obviously very difficult to be taking agricultural land off people and and, yeah. and divvying it up. And what happened in the in the Northeast Asian countries after the Second World War happened in a very particular context. That it was after the Second World War when fifty odd million people had died. Um, a country like Japan was occupied by the United States until nineteen fifty two. Uh, South Korea was occupied as well, um, and Taiwan was not officially occupied, but it was very much under U.S. sway. So it was possible in that time to make these very bold decisions um, and and get away with them. And in in China and in um, Vietnam, of course, um, the land reforms there were done by victorious communist parties. Um, who, well, in the case of the Chinese, one you know, Mao famously said it wasn't a bad thing if, if one landlord in every village was killed, you know, just right. to send a political message. So this stuff was not done um, in, a, in a gentle kind of way. Um, and similarly, I mean, uh, you know, just talking there about Ethiopia, the land reform that was done in Ethiopia was done after the overthrow uh, of Haile Selassie by a Maoist regime, um, and yeah, it was very effective. And um, the current Ethiopian government has built on that and increased agricultural productivity, and it's all worked out very well. But again, it was not a, a, a thing that was done um, happily and voluntarily by everyone. So um i think that as we've gotten further away from that particular from particularly from the context of the of the post second world war era um land reform has tended to um get further off the agenda just because um you know people say well how are you how are you actually going to do this and there was a time in the 1960s when the kennedy government had a go at sort of pushing for it again but what happened more in the 60s was that there were more sort of half-hearted um, land reform attempts, or well, there were lots of exemptions to try and make them more reasonable and so on, um, and um, the results were not great. Um, so I suppose the lessons, the, the lesson, uh, key lesson that we've seen in land reform is that you either do it and do it completely, or um, anything that's sort of in the middle um, tends not to work anything like as, as well. Okay, and I suppose maybe we we can finish on on China as I I suppose that that's maybe where it it kind of begins for you. I mean, what 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 do you think some of the most important economic or societal trends going on in China are right now? Is it still the same same story as we've been discussing, or or, or is something shifting? Ah, uh, well, I mean, to my mind, you know, China has gotten you know China's gotten so far into um, its 
economic development that you know politics starts to become more important. Um, I think that you know certainly when I lived there in the 90s and through the tech 2000s, the economy was growing very fast, and people were absolutely happy to accept um, you know the trade-off that the Communist Party tacitly offered them, which is essentially don't make trouble. And you know we'll all we'll all get richer and richer. Um, I just think that when you're at ten thousand dollars GDP per capita, it starts to be a little different. And certainly that level of income is similar to where, for instance, Korea was at in the in the mid eighties, um, which is when people started to feel that they'd had enough um, of the military governments there. Um, so I, I don't know, but China, of course, in, is also different because it's such a huge country and the domestic market is so huge um, that it can afford to behave in an insular way to an extent that just isn't possible for a, for a lower population country. And we'll see. And, <laughs> and it's terribly difficult to... You know, I, I, I suppose as someone who lived there, I've, I've been amazed by how under Xi Jinping, China has become just so much more closed. You know, to the point where it's become incredibly difficult to speak, you know, even, for instance, to, to, to professors at, at Chinese universities. You know, people you mm. think that you could turn to for a conversation about what's going on with this and what's going on. It, it really has become a place where no one wants to talk about anything, and we'll have to see what happens. I mean, you know, there's every every week there's a new rumor, you know, about oh no, Xi Jinping is not really in control, and people are moving against it. But there's never any hard evidence of this. It's just whatever the the new rumor is, and um, I don't know. Um, how it will turn out, I just hope that, you know, China can make whatever transition it does make when there's some sort of political change without any bloodshed. Mm. Okay, well, lots of food food for thought there, Joe. Um, I suppose maybe maybe we should wrap up there. So so just, well, th- thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Now, last thing to say from me is thanks very much for everyone uh, listening. And please join us again soon for more Fun Fanatic Show podcasts. <laughs>